on a midsummer day, 66 million years ago, the world ended. An asteroid six miles across, this is roughly the size of the island of Manhattan, or of Mount Everest, crashed into what is now the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico, near what is now the town of Shixalug. The impact was catastrophic. As best we can tell from the fossil record and computer modeling, the results of the impact were not just felt in South America, but across the globe. The impact set ejecta, pieces of glass called tektites, into space. Some of them have been found on the moon. Some, of, some evidence of them has been found on Mars. Many of them fell across the Earth, raising worldwide temperatures briefly by several hundred degrees. The earthquake from the impact created tsunami-like waves across the world, including in an inland sea that covered what is now Nebraska and the Dakotas. To call it the end of the world is not hyperbole. The best estimates of paleontologists suggest that well over 99% of living creatures, from trees to insects to fish, died in a single day. Every animal over 45 pounds died. 75% of species went extinct. Dinosaurs were entirely wiped out. If we think of the Earth as a single living ecosystem, this was an accident that very, very nearly killed it and whose scars we can see today. There's a thing in geology called the KT barrier. It's a distinct layer of rock laid down 66 million years ago, made up of dust and clay. It exists pretty much everywhere you dig across the earth. And notably, it's rich in iridium an element that is very, very rare on Earth, but common in asteroids. In rock formations, dinosaurs are always found below the KT barrier. Never, not once in all the years humans have been studying paleontology above the KT barrier. This spring, Robert De Palma, a paleontologist, he's actually just down the road from here. He's at um, uh, Kansas, University of Kansas Lawrence. But he was working in the Hell Creek area of North Dakota. And he published a remarkable claim. If confirmed, we now have an archaeological site that captures, frozen in time, the day of the KT impact. In it, he reports finding animals, plants, and tektites all in a single area about the size of two soccer fields. The plants are charred by fire, and freshwater and saltwater fish are jumbled together at their base. De Palma's hypothesis, published in part in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, and in greater detail in a recent New Yorker profile, is that this jumble of remains is the KT barrier itself. The claim uh, that, that Schuyler read goes something like this. As the asteroid impacted in the Yucatan, earthquakes set off large tsunami-like waves in the inland sea up in this part of the world. That created massive flooding that killed the fish and other animals at the site, some of which are wrapped around trees that would have been on high ground. 
Within minutes or hours of the flood, tektites started raining down, setting fire to the trees. And then this whole mess was buried under mud from further flooding and earthquakes and thus preserved to the current day. Robert De Palma included a visual depiction of this in the National Academy article. Remember, he's a paleontologist, not an artist. I appreciate the Photoshop triceratops that's been turned upside down with little <laughs> bubbles flowing. It is a remarkable discovery made by an eccentric scientist who, when escorting journalists to the site, turns up the theme song to Raiders of the Lost Ark on his <laughs> truck. He named the site Tanis, which is also a Indiana Jones reference. Now, if you ask my parents when they first thought I might end up doing something like this for a living, they will tell you a story from when I was about eight years old. I was, as many kids are, fascinated, fascinated by dinosaurs. I wanted to be a paleontologist more than anything. And there was this movie coming out. And it was a bitter, bitter, bitter day when my parents told me I could not see Jurassic Park in the theaters because it was rated PG-13. I mean, my position is it couldn't be any worse than the land before time. <laughs> Steven Spielberg was involved in both. They're basically the same movie. So maybe in guilt at this, I ended up with a one-year subscription to a dinosaur encyclopedia that my parents got me. A new book would show up in our mailboxes each month. And apparently, and you'll have to... They will joyfully confirm this, but you'll have to ask them. Eight-year-old Oscar somehow got hold of a tape recorder and taped his own lectures on dinosaurs <laughs> based on those encyclopedia. So, you know, like I mentioned before, I was not a traditionally cool child. Yeah, but I'm hardly the only person with a story like that. Dinosaurs are, are cool. Why are we so drawn to these stories? Dinosaurs are hardly a topic that has direct influence on how we live our lives from day to day, although, you know, the moral lessons of Littlefoot are, are still important. The stories tell us something amazing. First, they're a kind of secular mythology when once we talked about giants and dragons and islands out beyond the horizon where the strange and marvelous dwell. Now we talk about 60 foot tall, 60 foot long creatures, some gentle plant eaters, some with teeth the size of chairs or small children. This is the stuff of legend. And it comes with this intricate system of naming and categorizing that seems tailor-made for certain of us. Even more amazing though is unlike these stories, those stories of giants and dragons, stories about dinosaurs are the result of the scientific method. As a placeholder, as we talk about the scientific method, this is what De Palma's research looks like in its published form. It is a little drier than the artist rendition he had earlier. 
The theme that we're holding loosely this month is curiosity. It's right then that we start out with a story about science and curiosity. At its best, science is just organized curiosity, an attempt to answer the almost infinite whys that make up life, a way of asking questions that does not accept we just won't know that as an answer, but finds new methods, new ways to frame the question and keeps asking. And it can be a long and difficult process. Last week, I talked about my little sister, the geologist. And from her, two weeks ago, I, mm -hmm. <laughs> and from her, I've learned just how many steps, continents, labs, and years can go into answering one fairly straightforward question. Was this patch of Greenland covered in ice 5,000 years ago? That's a question that takes five years to answer. And people in Australia, Greenland, Oregon, Pennsylvania, and Japan, there we go. Science is organized curiosity. We don't know exactly what year this asteroid impacted 66 million years ago, but we know it was in midsummer. Because when you look in certain areas of the KT barrier, where these two plants existed, embedded in the barrier is pollen from the lotus and the lily, which means that the impact must have happened in the overlap between when those two plants bloom, mid to late summer. In some ways, then, Robert De Palma's discovery in the Dakotas is contrary to how it usually goes. In one swoop, he's announced a leap forward in understanding the KT boundary, what would, in the usual course of things, be multiple career-defining discoveries in the field. And he's hitting him about one every two weeks. So there's some justified curiosity in what he claims to have discovered. The phrase I heard most often from his peers in researching this sermon was extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. But that's the strength of the scientific method. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Yeah. By asking questions over and over and over of the world and of each other, we can reach an understanding of some underlying truth. So stories about dinosaurs are not really stories, not just stories. They were the result of putting together a puzzle millions and millions of years in the making, finding remains in some of the most remote, remote parts of the globe to start to piece together just what the world looked like an almost unimaginable time ago. So just to put the, the time thing in perspective, imagine we had a time machine there was a request for a time machine earlier, so we're going, to, we're going to build a time machine in our minds. Imagine that time machine is a car, and it, uh, it goes backwards at, um, at 100 years a day. 100 years an hour, sorry, 100 years an hour. That's a good, that's a good car speed, right? <laughs> 6,000 years which is about the amount of time that's passed since humans wrote down, let there be light in the book of Genesis, would pass in our 
100 year per hour car in about two and a half days. So that's, say, driving from here to New York. How long would it take to go back at that same speed to the KT barrier and the end of the dinosaurs? Any guesses? 20 years? 753 years. And for those counting or curious, the Big Bang would take something like 5.8 million years in our time machine. <laughs> that we can even catch glimpses through that kind of time is incredible. Through science, we can look into the past and see a world wholly different than the one that we live in. And in seeing this deep time, we can understand ourselves both as the culmination of millions of years of events and a link in the chain that stretches far beyond the horizon in every direction. But to talk about dinosaurs, I think, is also to talk about endings. The dinosaurs are fascinating because of this disconnect. These huge, impossibly powerful things were here, and now they're not. What happened? This is a question that actually takes us beyond solely the scientific method because it is a question that predates the scientific method. We, meaning humans, culturally, seem to be fascinated by the end of the world. We are curious, I suppose. Each epoch, each, each time seems to talk about it in different ways, from the books of Revelation and Daniel in the Jewish scriptures, to Norse mythology, to Hindu mythology. The word in theology for the end of the world is eschaton. In Greek, it literally means last things. And if we can take a brief programming note, we'll return to this in a moment. All the songs today, some that we've sung, but mostly that the band is playing, are connected, at least in my own head, to eschatology. As a further programming note, if you have not yet come to a third Thursday service and you are enjoying the music, this morning. Come on Thursday night. We take music like the band has been playing, actually exactly like the band has been playing, they've done all of these songs at services over the last year, and we pull them out and really dig into what the songs mean. So Thursday night at seven here. But the end of the world, back to that. It won't happen before Thursday. Stories about the end of the world, the eschaton, are often reflective of the cultural anxieties of the time in which they are written. So Revelation was written later than most books in the Bible. It was written at the height of the Roman persecution of Christians. To take a much more recent example, the mid-20th century developed an entire genre of fiction 
telling the stories of what happens after a nuclear apocalypse. I grew up just as the Cold War was coming to an end when it was popular to talk about the end of history. And for a brief time, stories about the end of the world fell out of fashion, or at least became less a part of popular culture and more um, directly religious and countercultural, we'll say. But right now, I know at least for some of us, the world feels like we are living in the eschaton, right? Things are really very, very, very strange. If we aren't in the end of all things, and I don't, I don't actually believe we are, it certainly feels like we're in the end of some things. The climate is changing rapidly. The UN reported this week on the scale of extinction human behavior is causing. And politics, both national and international, seem to be at the point where the consensus and systems of the last century or more are breaking down. So is it a surprise then that our popular culture in 2019 has fixated on stories about endings? The post-apocalyptic, post-climate change thriller is still a live genre. We tell stories about the end of summer and forces just beyond the human. And in a moment, a little too on the nose for most sermons, the biggest movie in the world right now, this weekend, is literally titled Endgame. Eschatology serves two purposes. First, it provides for those traditions that see time as more linear than cyclical, an end in counterpoint to the beginning. A counterpoint to a myth of creation is a myth of the end. The Big Bang starts things off, but that poses the question, is there a big crunch at the end? This mirrors our own lives. What is it to be human? It's to be born and to know that we are going to die. Both are events so momentous and ones that we can't remember. I have no idea what it was to be born. I will not know what it is to die until that moment arrives. And yet we ascribe meaning to both of, the, of those things. We're in the world because we are born and while we're here, we experience it in all its beauty and wonder and horror, and, and then there is an end for us, and no matter what and how deep our faith might be, there's an element of not knowing. We do not know exactly how we become aware, and we don't know for sure what it is to die. We enter in the middle of the narrative, as Linda Hart put it. So talking about the end of the world in terms beyond the personal gives us tools to talk about our own mortality, individually and also as a species. There's a, there's a joke George Carlin used to tell, Saint Carlin of blessed memory. He said, people always talk about the end of the world. The world is going to be fine. We might not be. Here's the other lesson about eschatology. The end is rarely the end. In all of those myths, 
Revelation ends with a final reign of right. Spring follows winter every year. Marvel wants to make another few billion dollars at the box office. So 66 million years ago, the world ended. Fire rained down, the sky burned, the seas overflowed, and the earth shook, and after that, silence. And then the sounds of rodents. Poking their heads above the ground and seeing a world destroyed. I think we have a visual representation right here. but also, in some ways, a world reborn. To be caught up in it, momentous occasions can feel like the end of the world. But the story always keeps going, and there are always more questions to ask. Amen. <laughs>